Support for Talk the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation, partnering with donors and nonprofits statewide to strengthen Maine communities through grants and scholarships on the web at maincf.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with your host, Ron Beard, is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Basket making began from a practical need for people to carry and store food and supplies. As basket makers improve the utility of their products, they also distinguish their baskets through artistry, marrying form with function. Basket making has been a central part of Wabanaki culture for thousands of years and continues to develop both as an art form and as an economic resource. But baskets come from brown ash trees, and brown ash trees are under threat from a tiny beetle. Can science address this threat? And how about how might Wabanaki people help find a solution to the problem that has both economic, environmental, and social dimensions. So this morning's program, we're happy to welcome some folks in the studio who can help us wrestle with that, uh, that core problem. And uh, glad to, to welcome uh, Butch Jacobs. Butch is a member of the Indian, Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance. Welcome to you, Butch. Thank you. And we also have Colleen Tierling, who is with the Maine Forest Service, and she can help us understand what this tiny insect is and perhaps um, how we might be um, alert to find it. Welcome to you, Colleen. Hi. And on the phone with us, we have Darren Ranko. Darren is an associate professor of anthropology, and he's the coordinator of the Native American Research um, Unit at the University of Maine. Welcome to you, Darren. Good morning, Ron. Hello, everyone. Glad Hi. you could be, glad you could be, all be with us. Um, um, first, I think we'll we'll start with uh, Butch to learn a little bit more about um, basket making and his tradition, and then we'll um, go to Darren and and get um, a, a, the, the little bit larger picture about how the university is involved in in something called sustainability science and how that all relates. Um, so, Butch, tell us a little bit about your own basket making. Um, my own basket making. I'm one of the few basket makers that harvest the ash and hand pound the ash. And I'm a member of the Neptune family that's been making baskets for a very, very long time, multiple generations. And I learned the trade from my grandmother and became interested in all aspects of basket making. And um, I've learned something different every year that I've been a basket maker. I've been making for 10 or 12 years consistently. And I remember weaving as a child with my grandmother. Mm. Mm. So tell us a little bit about the harvesting aspect. Um, the, how do you how do you um, tell one brown ash well one ash tree from another and well, and get the tree that you're looking for? Um, brown ash has a distinctive leaf and a distinctive um, bark that's kind of cork like, and um, 
you kind of look at the tree and um, it has to be straight with no knots. Um, usually, usually I feel the tree, I can tell if there's little knots um, in it and um, sometimes I take a little notch out of the bottom, which if you don't cut the tree down doesn't hurt the tree because we put it back in and pack it with mud and um, the notch we took out. And you can look at the growth rings and the growth rings have to be a certain size before it can be hand pounded. If they're too thin, if the ash is in a dry area and the rings are um, small, um, that ash usually pounds out typically harder than on one with a little thicker rings, about mm. the width of a quarter. Mm. Mm. So you f find an ash tree um, and you determine that, that it's the quality that you're looking for. What happens next? Next, I cut down the tree and um, hand carry it out of the woods. And then I um, have some cradles I set the log into. And then I um, strip the bark off it. And I kind of, it's called pounding, but it's actually beating with the bat butt end of an axe onto the log. And that um, separates the growth rings of the tree. And I come off the log. And those are called splints. Mm. And then those splints are um, sometimes split one or two or three times. And then gauge with... Um, Gauges that have been around since um, the late 17, early 1800s, probably. And um, then sometimes the ashes died and then um, woven into a basket. Mm. And and the different um, widths would be for different kinds of baskets? Yeah, um, different widths and different designs. Mm -hmm. um, usually the thinner the width, um, the longer it takes to weave, obviously. So it's, I think it's a little bit stronger than a wider gauge width. Mm. And what do you imagine were, were some of the uses for the first baskets? I can't, only can imagine they were used to harvest um, food and um, carry things through the woods. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe that um, what we call fancy baskets now came about when they started migrating into Bar Harbor, mm -hmm. and there was more of a de demand for art than there was for practical baskets that were used mm. just for um, working baskets. Mm -hmm. And tell us about the baskets you make now. I make um, pretty much all types of baskets. I make working baskets and some fancy baskets like my grandmother did, mm -hmm. and um, always trying to um, come up with a new mold or design to make something a little bit different. Mm. And what do you remember about your grandmother? Um, I remember my grandmother working all the time. It mm -hmm. seemed like she was always doing something, whether it was preparing meal for all of her children or down in the cellar making baskets and making wreaths in the fall. Mm -hmm. and, would, and would she sell both fancy baskets and practical she baskets? Made, she made mostly um, fancy baskets, and um, her sons all wove together and made um, fish scale baskets for the fish hatcheries in Eastport mm -hmm. at mm -hmm. the time. Right. Right. And in terms of, of family tradition um, and, and teaching younger people, you're part of the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance, which really has helped um, kind of create an awareness and a need for um, always educating new basket makers. Yeah. Um, I'm currently teaching my two um, boys how to make baskets, and I am also a board member of the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance, and uh, we kind of oversee through a mentoring program that has been created by the Alliance to teach younger basket makers to make baskets and to be involved in the projects. Mm. Um, the main goal is to get younger basket makers to make baskets because when the Alliance was formed, the um, most of the group was elder in the late 50s, early 60s, and they've kind of lowered the age 
the average age of basket maker down to in the um, younger mid 40s, early 40s now. So they're trying to get more and more young people involved to keep the tradition going. Hmm. And what's the reaction of your sons? What do they What do um, they think about it? They kind of like it at times and don't like it at times. <laughs> Just about it, like any teenagers, I suppose. Yes. Yeah, and um, sounds like both boys and girls are involved in this in this yeah. work. Yes. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. Men have traditionally pounded pounded the ash, but that has changed as some um, women that pound their own ash now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of sales, um, you mentioned the Bar Harbor area. There's still a show in Bar Harbor. Um, there are other shows around the state. And yes. Outlets. Um, the show in Bar Harbor is typically the first Saturday after the 4th of July in July. Um, there's a show in August, the third weekend in August, at the Selfa Bay um, Village, the Shaker Village in Poland. Mm. Um, we have a December show, which is the first Saturday in December. And... Um, we, do we have a tenant at Common Ground Fair? And um, this week, coming weekend, not um, tomorrow, but next weekend, there's going to be several basket makers and artists at the Molly Arcade Festival in Bethel, Maine. Oh, great, great. Well, let's get a little bit of, uh, of a different perspective from Darren Ranko. Darren, uh, tell us a little bit about your position at the university, and then um, we can talk more about this um, project that is looking at both the, the basket makers and the threat of the uh, emerald ash borer. Darren? Yeah, uh, good morning. It's good to talk to you all. Sorry I couldn't be there. Um, uh, so as you mentioned, I'm coordinator of Native American Research at the University of Maine. I'm also chair of Native American Programs and associate professor of anthropology. Um, all that amounts to is uh, a huge commitment by the university and my time to really building uh, research relationships between the university and Native people. I'm, I'm a member of the Penobscot Nation, and um, I grew up uh, mostly in Orono, uh, just um, never really seeing the possibility even of a connection between the university and the tribe in this sort of deeper way. And uh, as I um, went through my career, um, it became clear that there was this commitment, and I was lucky enough to be hired by the university to come back home and um, build up, you know, really uh, an important kind of mutual relationships around research and education between the university and the tribes. And so... For me, uh, as a Penobscot and as uh, someone who comes from a basket-making family, this is something that, in terms of research and kind of the outreach components, that as you know, you know, Ron, that <laughs> extension is about you know really building those relationships and responding to the needs of um, people in the state. Um, I think it shows a great commitment. I'm very excited about the work we're doing, and and one of the projects, and I think you mentioned that the lead. Um, through the Sustainability Solutions Initiative, which is, uh, we can talk more about it, um, is to work with basket makers and people uh, like Colleen and the state government and foresters across the state and other researchers and anyone else who we can partner with to really um, plan for and um, the arrival of the Emerald Ash Borer, which is so far we, we don't have anything um, detected about it in the state, but it's fairly clear that this bug will reach Maine eventually, and the more organized we are, the more we have sort of good relationships with people across the state, and especially, um, you know, basket makers who really are concerned about these um, resources, the better we'll be able to to, um, respond to it and make sure people um, 
are involved in, in trying to uh, manage manage for it and have the solutions for it. Mm. What do, as you mentioned, you come from a basket making family. What do you remember about um, basket making as you were, uh, as a young person? Well, um, as really young, I remember going to the island and um, um, visiting. There were just two older ladies that made baskets and visiting with them and my parents. Talking, you know, I was so little I couldn't really remember they're <laughs> buying baskets from them. And then as a teenager, um, I visited the workshop of Irving Ranko, who is um, my my dad's first cousin. But they were, you know, um, they spent summers together. Um, my my great uncle Howard was his father, and um, he he had uh, been passed on the tradition of making uh, backpack baskets, which. Um, people might across the state might see them. LL Bean kind of markets these uh, mm-hmm. wood uh, backpack kind of things, and that's what I remember um, more directly. Like seeing the process and remembering when I saw the process and um, the connection with my own family of of those trees, that process, gauges, all the stuff that Bush talked about as a teenager and as I got into college. You know, talking to Irving and um, his his. Um, Backpack-oriented um, baskets, so not fancy baskets, were sort of what our, you know, we were doing the bigger work basket. Mm. Yeah, that was what my first my first um, pack was a pack basket, and uh, my dad um, gave it to me, and uh, mm. um, it was the most beautiful thing, but it was highly utilitarian. <laughs> I could That's put right. so much in that basket and carry it either in my canoe or, or on my back, and it was just, it was a great <laughs> kind of tool for me to be out, out of doors. So that must have been um, really neat for you to kind of see that, that connection. Yeah, and, and you know, it was, it, I, uh, uh, as an anthropologist, it's funny because I think about it too at the time, my, I think my mom had written Ranko in like a black magic marker on these. What, what I even knew as a kid was like, oh, why would you write on it? You know, it's this. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, they were Ranko baskets. You know, mm. they were used designs that were in our family. And, um, you know, in a way, that's sort of a nice, you know, designator and, you know, their designs and kind of keeping with that tradition. Some of the designs for those pack baskets were about um, the ease of keeping it in a canoe. So mm. it was shaped in such a way and all that stuff. I'm sure you know that as well. But that, you know, really thinking about your connection to that um, tradition through family, I think, is really important. And um, as I became um, a researcher and got interested in doing that kind of work, I always, and, and I had mentors within my own tribe who were um, always putting me kind of forward to do things like we need young Native people who are anthropologists because the anthropologists get to kind of say what our culture is, and you know <laughs> we we um, we need someone like you who knows who we are to kind of um, be at the forefront of that kind of field. And I always felt the great support from people in the community um, to become an anthropologist. And uh, someone else who I had met along the way is John Daigle, and this is just a little bit of the story of our team, who also comes from. He's also a University of Maine professor. He's in the Forest Resources Department. Um, he uh, also comes from a basket-making family. And, you know, years ago when we were both kind of like grad students, uh, we were like, oh, we should, know, we should do a basket-making project. You know, we were both like, we really want to make our research count for our culture and for the community, make something in terms of giving it back. And this is like 20 years later. We're finally doing this work and trying to work together with basket makers, with people in the state government to really um, uh, 
have a solution or at least uh, so a part of a solution response to something like a pest like the emerald ash borer. Mm. Tell us a little bit about um, how the, the sustainability solutions um, project is, is kind of formulated. How is it put together and what's your hope? What, what are you trying to achieve? Right. So the Sustainability Solutions Initiative is a much larger project than just our little piece of it. It's a you know, $20 million grant from the National Science Foundation to the university, and um, there's, it's also funding other, uh, not just the university, I mean other sort of projects and research and development cores across the, the state and other institutions as well. It's a lot of money, it can, and I, they're using it pretty well to serve as many institutions as possible. The... Um, the, the orientation, however, which I think is a really positive one, is about creating solutions in terms of scientific research that will work with um, publics, different publics, like basket makers or, or farmers or, or coastal managers or fishermen, you know, work to collectively with these people to um, figure out solutions to key problems. That, and, and as researchers, it's it's a challenge because we often are just sort of slotted in our single fields of expertise with that one little thing. We're highly expert in a very small thing, and we go very deep into that. Um, the problems that, that basket makers or fishermen or whoever that they face in the world don't, don't neatly fit into a single category like that. So it requires us as researchers to work with other kinds of researchers who have different forms of knowledge. It works you know, and the general public has, a, has other knowledges as well, and I think that's a really important part of our project is that basket maker, someone like Butch, has a really deep historical knowledge about something that we're, is part of the solution. So we're not, we're, we're not ex, the expert, and they're not just a public we're serving, that we're collectively actually sitting down and, and solving this together. But, you know, by actually looking at real-world problems, it requires us to go beyond our fields, and I think that's a real strength for our students, the university, and a host of other people that get to participate in what we're doing. Mm. So it sounds like there's both a conversation about what is the problem, um, right. and then a, a conversation about what could be the solution. Um, uh, perhaps both you and Butch and maybe Colleen can give us a sense of how did the, dis the description of the problem come about? How did people begin to be aware that there was a, um, an emerald ash borer that could threaten uh, Maine's basket making. Um, start with you, Darren, and then we'll see who sure. else. Well, you know, um, we had heard about the Emerald Ash for not long, um, and Butch can add to this, not long after it arrived in Michigan through the sort of Native Arts Network, so there's a Michigan sort of version of the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance. Um, yeah, but more recently, in terms of even framing our project, and this just gives you sort of a process of how we... Um, sustainability solutions kinds of projects work is that the very first summer we were getting funding we had actually set up to do a research project on just you know getting forestry people and basket makers together to develop a tool that would protect um, brown ash trees that basket makers use and the emerald ash borer was not a part of that original project mm. and, but we went out to um, different basket maker communities uh, different state government you know did, we did kind of a summer of focus groups asking people what they wanted to know about this. Is this, a, is this the right kind of project? And particularly from the basket makers, we heard, well, we need to know more about this bug that we heard, you know, 
back five years ago, they said it wouldn't. It would be 25 years by the time it got here, and they had seen it go much more quickly from Michigan, where it was originally found, much more quickly than they had originally forecasted. And so they were quite um, felt like we need to know more. Your researchers, you help us figure out where it is, what we can do, that sort of thing. And so right from the beginning, we were responding to a sense of a really urgent and, and important need from people. Mm. I'll just remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about uh, basket making and Maine's brown ash trees and the possible threat um, by a small insect. And in the studio with us, we have Colleen Tierling, who is with the Maine Forest Service, and Butch Jacobs, who is a Maine Indian basket maker. He's a member of the Alliance. And on the phone with us is Darren Ranko, who's Associate Professor of Anthropology and Coordinator of Native American Research at the University of Maine. Um, in a little while, we'll welcome your phone calls, but uh, let's find out a little bit more about this this uh, insect. Uh, Colleen, give us a, a brief description of your position within the Maine Forest Service and then talk a little bit about the, the, the threat. Well, I'm one of the entomologists. There's three forest entomologists in the state, and I'm one of those three. And one of the insects that I'm working with, even though it's not yet in Maine, is emerald ash borer. I'm monitoring for it, preparing for it, um, doing all we can to keep it from coming into the state, and that's, that's one of the things that I do. Mm. Um, the emerald ash borer, it's originally a creature from um, China, um, and it's a little, a beautiful little insect. It's only about maybe half an inch long, uh, bright metallic green, and it uh, attacks ash trees. It the the lar it lays its eggs in the bark and the larvae tunnel underneath the bark and it essentially girdles a tree from the inside. Mm. Um, the larvae just feed on the cambium layer, and when the numbers are high, emerald ash borer can kill a tree in three years easily, and it moves like wildfire. Uh, primarily because the larvae are hidden underneath the bark, nobody knows that it's there. I mean, there I could potentially, even as an entomologist, I could look at a piece of firewood and not necessarily see that there is an emerald ash borer there because it could be small and it could be hidden underneath the bark. And so people have trees in their yards. They don't know that emerald ash borer is in their area. The trees in their yards are looking kind of sickly. They cut them down, stock the firewood in their backyard, then they go camping to Maine or somewhere else, and they take some firewood with them because they don't want to buy it when they get there. And that's how this insect has gotten moved around. Mm. Um, it originally started out in North America. It came to Detroit, probably in solid wood packing materials, pallets and things. And um, and then once it's in this, once it's in the country, it's just spread primarily through firewood. Mm. Um, mm. And it's it's spread very widely throughout the eastern half of the country mm -hmm. and, you, and eastern Canada as well. Yeah. But you mentioned um, going to Michigan as part of an exchange or a, a tour with other basket makers. Um, tell us what you saw when you, when you were looking at this I issue. Um, I saw huge ash stands that had complete devastation. I don't think there's any other word for it. We were there in the mid-spring and it looked like that the leaves have already fallen, the full foliage was all gone, mm. so that's... Mm. And you said you could actually see insects flying as well? Yes, um, the, you could see the ash borer flying in the air around the trees feeding on, yeah. feeding on the leaves. Yeah. So you were there um, with um, basket makers from, from Michigan. What has been their response? How, how, can you, how can any community respond to something so devastating? Um, their response is that you need to do something to stop it from coming to Maine. Mm. Um, I think we're trying to do that, but um, 
Their response is also, how are they going to protect their traditions right. if all the ash dies off? Right. And were they, um, they were certainly encouraging um, steps like um, Colleen is, des- is, is describing in terms of monitoring. Um, what were they beginning to think about for their own ash trees? Could, could you stockpile them? Could you, um, could you put them underwater and, and protect them for, for a, a period? What, what could they do? Um, the logs can be soaked for a while underwater and be saved a pound, and there's some, they're, they're trying some other things how after the splints are coming off the log to see if they can save, them, save the splints mm-hmm. to continue the tradition. Yeah, they're just they're just stuck. They're just yeah. stuck. So the the name of the game is prevention, and that's where Colleen comes in. So what are the ways in which we're trying to prevent emerald ash borers from coming to Maine? Well, Maine a couple of guess a couple of years ago, Maine um, instituted an emergency order to stop firewood from being moved into the state. So it's now illegal to bring firewood into Maine from out of the state. Even within the state, we're encouraging people not to move firewood more than about 50 miles from where the tree was grown because we don't know. There could be an emerald ash borer infestation in some part of Maine. Often we don't find those infestations for five or 10 years. And so you could inadvertently end up moving firewood or mm. moving infested firewood around and moving insects like emerald ash borer with it. Mm. Um, so we're encouraging people not to move firewood long distances within the state, but certainly it's illegal to bring it from out of the state. Um, education is just a huge part of what we do. There are only three forest entomologists in the state, and if emerald ash borer comes to Maine, it's probably not going to be one of the three of us that finds it. So we're trying to educate as many people as possible about what this insect look like, looks like, and... Um, and we get hundreds of calls every year about people who th- from people who think they found emerald ash borer. So far, it's always turned out to be one of the lookalikes that are native and they belong here. But that's really encouraging because there are a lot of people out there looking. And the more people that are looking, the more likely it is that we'll find it early if it comes to Maine. And in my mind, that's really key because if we find this insect early, there are things we can do about it to slow down the spread. Okay. Um, so are these these um, folks who are helping you are they organized volunteers or they're random volunteers? How how do you get that information from volunteers? Well, I mean, a lot of people is just you know that we've we've given talks um, and and they hear about it. We send out information, and so they're just sort of keeping their eyes open. But we also do have more formal groups of volunteers that help us with with various monitoring programs. So we have a program, it's called biosurveillance, which basically just means we're using one creature to look for another creature. And in this case, it's a non-stinging wasp, it's native, that lives in baseball diamonds primarily, um, (laughs) mainly in the parks and the schools. um, And it comes out during the summer and it hunts, uh, sorry, it hunts mostly native beetles that are related to emerald ash borer. But if emerald ash borer is around, it's really, really good at finding emerald ash borer. And as humans, we're really, really bad at finding emerald <laughs> ash borer. So we, we don't find, eat, eat them. Yeah, and, and we're not up at the very tops of trees, uh-huh. which is where the, where the beetle starts out. Uh-huh. And so we find colonies of these wasps, and, and, uh, and then the natives, or the, the, the volunteers monitor them uh-huh. and, um, and just watch to see what kind of prey they bring back and watch to see if there's any emerald ash borer there. And... So that's one of the things that we're doing with volunteers. Mm. Um, and we also have 
a couple of other programs that the volunteers are involved with. Mm -hmm. And we're also monitoring with um, purple traps. They're great big sticky traps that are hung in trees, in ash trees. We've got about close to a thousand of them throughout the state this year. Um, and so that's another thing that we're doing just to try to find emerald ash borer early if mm -hmm. it has come to Maine. So if it started out in, in Michigan, where has it progressed to? Where do we know that it's progressed to? The closest infestations that we know about, um, there's one south of Montreal, just about 40 miles north of the Vermont border. And then there's also a fairly big infestation in the Catskills in New York, right on the Hudson River. Um, they have discovered that just hopped across the Hudson River to the east side of the Hudson River. They're working really intensively there and they're hoping that maybe they you know, caught it in time and, and maybe even eradicated on the east side of the river. But you know, eventually it is going to move from mm. that area. Mm. They're, doing, they're doing a lot now to slow it down and that's all to the good for us. Mm -hmm. So what are the steps? Should we find it in, in Maine? What, what steps would, would Maine Forest Service and others begin to take? Um, that would depend on how big the infestation was, how long it had been here. Um, you know, if it's just a small spot infestation, we might have different steps and it was a great big infestation that had been here for 10 or 15 years and nobody had noticed. Um, the first thing we would do is just lots of monitoring to try to, you know, figure out where it was and what the boundaries were. Mm. Um, then there are things that we can do to encourage the beetle, you know, to reduce the number of beetles there, you know, cutting down badly infested trees that are basically dead anyway, reduce the numbers of beetles. Um, there are things we can do that encourage the beetles to move in towards the center of an infestation rather than spreading out. And that's, if there's a big infestation, that's the main thing we would want to do is just to slow down the spread and keep the beetles as long as possible in a small area. Mm -hmm. um, well, maybe we, we've got um, some, some, some room to kind of figure these things out if it hasn't come this way. Let's um, go again to, to Darren. Um, is there a phone call? Yes, let's take a phone call. Um, uh, your questions, maybe we can answer them, or maybe you've got some comments. Give us a call at one 866 625-9378 as we talk about basket making and the threat to Maine's brown ash trees here on Talk of the Towns. But we do have a phone call. Let's go ahead and take that call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm wondering what impact uh, the, the east-west highway, proposed east-west highway, might have on introducing uh, the emerald ash borer uh, from the St. Lawrence Valley, perhaps, to, to Maine, if, that, if that's a legitimate concern. Great question. Thanks for your call this morning. Um, I'll see if, if any of our guests have a response to that. Uh, we have uh, Colleen Tierling of the Maine Forest Service here in the studio, along with Butch Jacobs, who is an um, Indian basket maker, Maine Indian basket maker, part of the Alliance, and then Darren Ranko is um, professor of anthropology at the university. Any, any thoughts on, on the East-West Highway? No, no thoughts? Um, in uh, oh. Go ahead. Colleen, go ahead. In general, invasive insects do follow roads because it's human beings that move them around. The building of another highway, I don't know if that's going to really increase the chances of an infestation um, because it's probably going to be roughly the same number of people that are traveling. They'll just be traveling a different route. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know that a, a new highway would, would make a big difference. If they were transporting firewood, it might. But it would, we're, but we're, those we're people would probably transport firewood no matter what road they came on, I suspect. Right. Right. Darren? Yeah, yeah. And no, and I was just going to say the same as Colleen, that uh, the roads are important. Um, uh, my sense would be, and uh, it's not because I'm pro or con the highway, it, it's simply... The, the roads that we need to monitor, say, uh, even in the western part of the state, tends to be, you know, those roads that are 
um, camp campgrounds and uh, mm-hmm. all sorts of other things are already on, and those roads are kind of small anyway. Uh, and that's one of the complicated issues that you know the public needs to buy into the no firewood thing because it's impossible to have a sort of monitoring of firewood movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's part of a key public education. Um, element of the response. And that was, I was just going to follow up on what Butch was saying before, you know, and we were able to fund, you know, four or five basket makers to go from Maine to Michigan to see what it looked like there. And to me, that that was part of funding, not just, uh, you know, a cool trip and we're going to go see what it looks like, but it was really kind of training folks see what to look for, and you can't really read about that in a book or or see it in a magazine. And I think really going there and seeing the trees and um, the way that basket makers process the wood, which is m- very intimate, you know, with the tree itself, um, so they know what to look for, uh, is, was a, is a huge thing. Now, we only had, you know, five people, but these are five people who are out monitoring, you know, in their own way are processing wood like like butch uh, we we actually brought people all of whom process wood you know and our basket makers um so for us it was a very important part and that was responding to what uh the folks in michigan had been saying which is you know basket makers are kind of our first line of detect mm-hmm. uh for this because of the way they process the wood you know someone could cut down a whole stand of hardwood trees and ash might be a small percentage of them and you know, in terms of the timber industry and really not notice anything in the way that it's sort of a little bit more industrialized in terms of the processing of the wood. Uh, people who cut for firewood might notice it, but they might not know what to look for. Or they're not, you know, they're not going to peel the bark necessarily when they uh, burn the wood. So it's a very, um, basket makers, I think, can serve a really important role. And that was the other piece that the Michigan folks, um, and I want to just thank Kelly Church. I'm sure she's not listening. She's in Michigan. But she's a member of the Michigan Basket Makers Association and um, really helpful to our um, Basket Makers Alliance here and to us as uh, researchers at the university. And Colleen, I know, has met her several times. That, you know, they've been really um, trying to help us prepare better than they they didn't have a chance, you know. Yeah. So one of the things that they've saying, you know, get involved in uh, the development of, say, emergency response plans, which is something we've been working on the last six months in a pretty important way, that basket makers and basket maker concerns should really come through in how we are going to respond to this. So we don't want basket makers to kind of suffer um, and be left out of uh, whatever response that could happen in terms of quarantines or whatever the state and the federal government choose to do in terms of responding to it, that basket makers and are, are involved in that, as well as being trained to to know what to look for. And you know, we've those are things you can do. I mean, when it comes to invasive pests, in terms of that policy, it seems overwhelming. Like there's not much you can do, but in fact, there are ways that we can work together and plan and respond that will make um, the impacts of this thing far far less and make people. Mm-hmm. impact people far, far less if we actually prepare for it. Mm. What you described, you know, your process of going out um, and finding an ash tree, you're looking for both the quality, but now you're looking for um, brown, I mean, emerald ash borers. Yeah, I think I always check the top of the tree mm-hmm. um, to see if there's any infestation. And also we peel the bark off the tree before we start the um, making the splint process so we can see if there's any... Um, it looks like little tunnels kind of in the Cambian layer. Is that the correct yeah. word? Mm-hmm. 
that's outside the tree. It's the first layer below the bark, and um, so all the all the people that all of us that are harvesting would have been looking for this ever since we've been to Michigan, and we've shown other harvesters what to look for also. Mm-hmm. And you've also indicated that um, some people who are um, in the in the wood business are surprised that, that they don't know about this. So there's a story that we need to be telling everybody. Yeah, I don't know if they don't know or don't want to, don't think it's here yet, so it's not nothing, anything to worry about. Or um, I think one of the problems is that the ash we use is not um, used in any other process. It's not a... There's not much money in ash, it's just firewood, so it's not really on anybody's, it's only on a small group of people's radar, it's not mm-hmm. on a big, um, And you're big not scale. harvesting great amounts, you're, you're, you know, you've got a fairly limited, um, one tree makes a lot of baskets, in other words. Yeah, <laughs> um, probably the person that harvests the most ash is, his name is El- Eldon Henning, and he harvests, uh, Probably a hundred trees a year ish. Mm-hmm. So he, I would say, he harvests most of the ash for the alliance, mm-hmm. and then the rest of us harvest um, as we need it, mm-hmm. basically. So I don't think there's a number for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the rest of us to do it. Well, perhaps there are other uh, listeners who have questions about uh, basket making and the threat um, to Maine's brown ash trees. Give us a call one eight six six. 625-9378 or locally 469-0500 here on Talk of the Towns. Darren, what would you add in terms of, of the, the ways in which your team is kind of working together to um, understand the problem and then begin to um, devise strategies to prevent um, uh, impact? Yeah, so, you know, for us, the research process has been important and uh, obviously I've, I've noted that in terms of how we design our research questions and how we go about it, that we're also just not, you know, note takers at the sidelines, um, you know, monitoring and just, you know, saying, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, that we're actually actively, you know, engaged in responding to the threat, trying to solve this. is a a little bit different than sometimes than how research is framed, although a lot it's of It's not an is, academic exercise. This it's is, not this an is exercise. Real life. This is, yeah, mm-hmm. this is a very important thing for me personally, and I think that comes through in, with um, the folks you have there as well. And um, one thing that we're working on from a couple of different angles is uh, mapping. Now, you'd think, um, well, we probably have good maps of trees in Maine, and, uh, you know, there's lots of trees, and a lot of people are interested in trees, but yeah, Butch, Butch talked about um, ash trees in general um, are not seen as a really important economic resource in the state. It's a very small percentage of the trees. I think it's around 4 or 5%. Um, and then brown ash, which is an even smaller, we have, you know, the three ash trees that we have in, in Maine are the white, the green, and the brown. And the white and green are actually probably a little bit more similar to each other, and the, and the brown or black ash is actually the same species as we call it brown in Maine, and it's known as black ash, uh, Fraxinus nigra, in every other place. So um, that sometimes that can pose a little bit of a problem talking across to people like in Michigan who call it black ash, but it's the same tree. Um, and the, the, the brown or black ash is um, a small percentage of ash trees, so you have a very small percentage of that 4%, and it grows in places generally that the, the forest products industry doesn't really even harvest from, you know, in low-lying areas, wet areas along, you know, close to rivers or 
or swamps or streams. Um, it requires that really um, huge influx of water in the way that it grows. Um, so we have uh, we don't have the kind of clarity of where sort of important ash stands uh, are in a general sense across all the ash trees, and particularly trying to map and find locations and areas where we would really want to develop strategies, forestry and other cutting kinds of strategies to protect um, this resource. And, and if you do know where it is, there, there are, in terms of responding, uh, depending on the, the kind of infestation, there are ways that you can respond and protect areas for five, ten years, maybe even a little bit longer, and it gives you that time to cut and, and, and store trees. And, you know, it's, it's not going to be the – if we do nothing, it could go really through that wildfire kind of way. If we get a handle on where it is and um, mm -hmm. are able to plan for it and respond to it, we can manage it, and it would be a discussion we could have with at least across one generation of management and – continue to teach our traditions, continue to kind of use ash trees. So I think the idea that people say, well, there's nothing you can do from an invasive pet, you know, there's always things we can do, and what it does, it always buys you time, and I think that's a very important element in terms of the economics and cultural aspects for our communities as Native people, but also for the remainers who um, so many, you know, I live in Hamden, so many of, uh, so much of our streets are lined with ash trees, which ironically were planted to um, replace elm trees in a lot of situations that were taken through Dutch elm disease earlier. So that we, are, I'm sure my town and other towns in the state would want time where we didn't have to spend our whole town budget cutting down dead ash trees and replacing them, or even not replacing them, just removing them would cost a ton of money. Mm -hmm. So I think that we spend, a, it's always that, prevent, you know, a little bit of money and effort for preventative things always saves you money and always gives you more time on, this, on the other side. And this is just like every one of those situations. Right. And if I could add a little bit to that, to yeah. buying time, um, it also just buys us time for more research. We have answers now about how to deal with emerald ash borer that we didn't have five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, so, you know, in Michigan, it was, you know, an automatic death sentence for almost every ash tree in, in the infested areas. And so now we do have time, or we do have, you know, answers that'll help us keep our trees alive longer. And, and if we can buy ourselves more time, who knows what other answers will come up in another five, ten years. Great. Let's take a phone call now. one 625 9378 We have a caller on the line. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Yes, good morning. Uh, I'm calling from Orono, and there's three things I want to say. One is I actually get sort of a recycled firewood that's all ash. I never burned it before in my life. It's a beautiful wood. It burns with sparkles in it. But it comes from a man who gathers it from the PV Corporation up there on Route 9 that uses a lot of ash in its um, handle. And so there are other types of uses for ash, green, white, or black, I'm sure, um, that, are, that are being done around in the state of Maine and other places. Woodworkers in particular would, would understand what they need for a good straight-grained wood. Now, the second thing is um, we're in the modern technological age. We can monitor actual stands and even individual trees in our forests and anything that's growing through remote sensing and low infrared photo photography 
and other means like that and get a really quick handle on mapping the growth and spread of a disease or just even where the trees are. And then the third thing is, um, what are these methods? Is it Can we attack them with chemicals, which isn't probably the best thing, but, you know, there, there has to be some kind of a happy medium. If the ashes are, if the beetles are infesting ash stands where they've never been before, of course it's going to be a rise and then possibly a crash. But, um, you know, we can sort of up the ante here a little bit by thinking in a broader sense about protecting the Penobscots, their basket making, the ash forest uh, component in general, and straightening out the mapping and the monitoring of this for our future. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning. Um, again, one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Colleen, some some thoughts about um, this caller's approach. Um, yes, we certainly have. People have been doing a lot of research on on mapping and using using various remote sensing methods. It's not entirely straightforward, um, but but it is being used. Not. It's not a perfect, a perfect answer, but it is one tool that that can help. Um, in the end, ground truthing, you know, going out and actually looking at the tree is something that needs to be done. And in Maine, there are a lot of trees, um, and certainly there are various things that that can be done to help control this insect. There there are pesticides that can be used. They have to be injected into the tree. They can be kind of expensive. It's not something that can be used in the forest. We don't really know yet, I think, how they, those pesticides might affect the qualities of a tree in terms of basket making. Um, and it's certainly not something you do in a large scale. Um, we are doing biological control in areas where, where emerald ash borer is prevalent, um, bringing over some tiny, tiny little parasitic wasps from China. Um, there's there's always a little bit of risk when you bring in a foreign insect to deal with another foreign insect. There's been some, you know, quite a bit of research to make sure that these insects are not going to attack any of our native species. Um, but there's always a little bit of risk bring, bringing something in. Mm -hmm. um, the risk of doing nothing is probably a lot greater, so we are bringing these, these wasps in. Um, but that's going to be a long-term solution. We probably aren't going to see results for, you know, 10 or 20 years before mm -hmm. the, the numbers actually rise enough to, to, to keep, keep the emerald ash borer in check. And that's your, that's your again, the, what you started with is saying, buy as much time as we can yes. to get as, more answers as we yeah, can. Yeah, and, and buying time is probably, the, in Maine, the best thing we can do. Mm -hmm. We've been really lucky being sort of way off. At the, mm -hmm. On the coast, and mm -hmm. in, in kind of a corner here, and plenty um, of firewood within the state yes, already. So yeah. we're not a big firewood importer, yeah. I would imagine, and, and not as many people here as in some of the other states, and right. that's probably saved us as right. well. So we do have some time, um, yeah. and the more time we can buy, the better off we'll be. Yeah, I think we have another phone call. Let's go ahead and take that call. If you'd give us your first name and where you're calling from, um, and then go ahead with your comment, please. Uh, yeah, this is Wally calling from Harrington, and uh, I came up here to Maine in the early 80s, and I seem to remember the, uh, I don't know if you talked about this already, but the spruce budworm thing was like hot and heavy at the time, and it seems like the whole argument was the same then. I was like, oh, well, let's just spray it all, all the woods, and we'll buy time so that we can harvest the spruce and fir before they all die. 
Well, I, th I think you, you, you may have joined us a little bit late. We, we are not talking about um, that kind of solution here. Um, Colleen has just mentioned that there's some limited um, applications tree by tree, but not as a forest-wide kind of effort. Is that right, Colleen? Yes, yeah. yeah. But, but still the thinking is the same. Like, I don't know if you remember, I always think about uh, the movie Jurassic Park, and the, the dinosaurs seem like they always get off the island no matter what you do. <laughs> and I've also noticed on my farm i used to be really heavy about like oh i've got some new mustard plant or something that i like oh i gotta eradicate every instance of the mustard that i see but i find that if i just you know nature somehow figures it out like it's like it's a balance you know so, well again did you listen to the earlier did you listen to the earlier part of the program in terms of what's happening in michigan and did you hear butch talk about what he saw there well, it sounds bad, but I just don't think you can help it. You know, that's my opinion anyway. Okay. Well, thanks for your call this morning. I, I think it's always, this is Darren again, yes. I think it's always that, I, I agree, you know, with the the points the caller is making. I think it's just that balance of the problem. Invasives are, are, are about humans, right? So the humans are the ones that are creating the Jurassic Park. So we're sort of on the hook to do something, and... Um, I'm all for the least um, footprint that we can do to respond to those kinds of problems. But it sounds like the, sounds like Darren. The difference is um, that there's many more people involved in this conversation than there were uh, 30 years ago in terms of, of spruce budworm. Um, uh, the the coalition absolutely. that you're putting together is it's much broader than um, the forest industry practices and the Forest Service. Absolutely, and and, and I guess that you know my point was too to just say like. We actually are doing what Colleen was referencing, is just buying times for nature to respond. That will definitely be the best solution, not spraying, not, you know, I think the injection methods that Colleen was talking about is really to preserve, you know, your, your front yard is shaded by your big white ash tree, you know, you want to preserve that as opposed to letting it, you know, it's be not taken. a really long, large-scale no. solution at all. Mm. You know? No, but, it, it, but, you know, there are, you know, certain kinds of forestry techniques where you would say, and Colleen knows more about them than I do, but where you would, you know, kind of purposely, say, girdle or slowly kill some ash trees in an area of the woods that creates a kind of pathway for the, the pest to go towards, which would draw it sort of away from another part of the forest that would have more ash trees, perhaps, and would be more vulnerable or whatever, that these are techniques we as humans can do that aren't about, you know, it's about buying time, right? So, you know, does that mean that the, the Emerald Ash Forest will never get to that other part of the forest? No. But what it does is maybe it buys you three or four years for the, a certain part of the forest, and that can mean a lot in terms of nature responding. And that's where, you know, as humans, we're the ones that are kind of causing these little weird things of no one was shipping, you know, stuff from China so frequently before the last 40 years. So those crates and those pests that are attaching themselves to those things, you know, just didn't exist before. So we're, we are, I mean, I think we're in the business of really trying to give nature a chance to respond. Mm. Butch, can we bring you back into the conversation and talk a little bit about, again, your hopes in terms of the, the uh, Basket Makers Alliance? Um, looking out um, five or, or ten years, what are your hopes for, for basket making in Maine? Um, I hope that tradition continues, and I think that um, with all this new mapping and stuff, we may find greater access 
to the black ash or brown ash trees that we have, and I'd like to make a comment. I think the difference with the spruce budworm is that spruce and fir are much highly sought after than um, the ash trees are, and um, PV manufacturing does use ash in their process, but they may be the only manufacturer in the state that uses just ash for their wood handles on their products. So I think it's a different scale of what needs to be used. I mean, if you took away all the spruce in the state, I think a lot of people may be unemployed, not employed. <laughs> and it's not its not saying that PV doesn't employ anybody, but I think it's a much smaller scale than, mm. I mean, about every woodcutter I know has cut spruce for logs and for pulp for the paper facilities that are still in operation today in the state. Mm. Mm. So this notion that we're dealing with a, um, a relatively small harvest um, makes it even more poignant that we ought to be able to protect that small harvest for basket makers. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Colleen, what, 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 uh, what are your hopes as you think about um, this w work? You're, you've got federal funding at this point for, for a year. What happens after that? Well, this is a, a insect pest that when it first showed up, there was there were millions and millions of dollars for research, and and now as it becomes more and more established throughout larger areas of the U.S., there's less and less money. Um, so, I guess my hope for Maine is that we can continue to monitor and and look for this, and if we if it does come here, we find it as soon as possible because that does give us more options. And generally, if we can just keep it out as long as possible and buy ourselves right, some time. Right, right. And Darren, how about you? How, what, what are your hopes in terms of this particular project and then perhaps going to, again back to um, Butch's point in terms of, of basket making? What are your hopes there? Yeah, you know, I think one thing that I want to say about, um, you know, we work with a group of people from very different parts of the state with very different kinds of roles and backgrounds and, and, and cultures in a way. Um, and that we're able to work together because they've, and I think this is a really strong quality for Mainers, you know, trying to, you know, work together to solve problems with um, your neighbor or someone down the street. And that existed before even I came to the University of Maine, that um, some of the basket makers were already working with some university researchers. Colleen had met a lot of the folks, Dave Struble, others had, you know, engaged with the basket makers alliance. So, um, for me, one of the things I see happening is that that those connections are are growing even stronger. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's a process that hopefully will continue far beyond this project. So, I think in a really important legacy is not whether we solve this pest problem, but you know that we're going to actually deepen and be able to work together better for the next pest. You know, this we're not this project. You know, it's not over after this thing, right? This the next thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you know we're able to be better and work together better now because of you know the the um, process and the willingness to work together from ten years ago. So I really think uh, a legacy will be an integration, especially. There may be political things that go on up at the higher up levels, but you know, basket makers, main forest ser service people, you know, for professional foresters, those people all on the ground who are actually out in the woods, they usually find a way to work together in a really positive way and solve things. So, to me, I'm really hopeful around that, and that's the next kind of elements of what I think is a legacy. And to me, as as uh, Penobscot. You know, that gives me a great amount of hope that our 
cultural and natural resources that they'll continue to exist in Maine because I think there's enough commonality in terms of interest and willingness to work together to protect these resources that kind of goes across cultures and communities. Mm. It sounds like the, the, the legacy really is the relationships, and the relationships lead people to have important conversations. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, just a, a note, uh, Darren, if, if people wanted to know more about uh, the Sustainability Solutions Initiative and, and related projects, I assume um, they go to a website. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, which I, you know, I'm sure I can remember this. No, uh, no not, not, time, not but, but it, yeah, if, the, if there's, um, through the George Mitchell Center at the University of Maine, um, and you can just type in Sustainability Solutions Initiative and all the projects and their um large number of projects that are doing similar things across the state. And you can type that in Google or Bing or whatever, and um, you can really find what we're doing. And this is just one small part of that. Great. And and Butch, um, Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance probably also has a, a website. If so, if people want to find out more, they could do that. Yes, they have a website and a Facebook page. Great, great. And, and your director um, is Teresa Secord. That's correct. And so she's she was the one that kind of gave me um, the idea for this this radio show. So I'm really grateful for her and for, to uh, you for coming, Colleen. How about if folks are interested in the kind of the forestry side and perhaps some of them want to volunteer? How would they get in touch? Well, Maine.gov/eab is a good place to learn about Emerald Ash Borer. Um, eab. Eab. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and. Otherwise, you could just sort of look up the Maine Forest Service Great. Um, in, in, and, uh, and give us a phone call or you know, go online and find us. And we're always glad to have people who are interested in, in working with, or with, with us. Great. Well, thank you all. Darren, thanks for being with us by phone. I'm glad to have you with us. Likewise. Okay, and now um, we've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our uh, guests um, here in the studio, Butch Jacobs of the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance, Colleen Tierling of the Maine Forest Service, and joining us by phone, Darren Ranko, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Coordinator of Native American Research at the University of Maine. Thanks to those of you who listened and called in with your questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters, and thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.